man thank you so much for being on today i really appreciate it thanks for having me thanks for having me it's a pleasure to be on here yeah for sure now where are you located in the world so uh we're located in dallas texas dallas texas it's nice and i was about 65 degrees right now and sunny it's it's great wow that sounds nice it's just raining a lot where i'm at (laughs) right now oh that's where are you located I'm in Blaine, Washington, about a mile or so from the Canadian border. Uh, oh, beautiful place. Beautiful place. Yes. Yes. One of the f- most favorite trips I've ever been on was I've got a family and, and a number of friends in Seattle. We stayed in Seattle a couple of days and then we drove up uh, through the border to Vancouver and stayed mm-hmm. there. And that whole part of the country is uh, it's totally underrated. You have to, I, obviously you have to have a certain sort of, uh, personality to endure the rain and the cloudiness. Um, and I think it's more clouds than rain, right? Like you actually don't yeah. get as much rain as people think you get. Yeah. We Is don't that get right? that much rain actually at all. And actually for the last two weeks, it's been nothing but sunshine and, uh, no rain. And it started raining today, but honestly, it's a huge misnomer that it rains a lot. It's actually sunny quite a bit more than you think. Yeah. 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 So it's just, that's such a great part of the country. That's not, you know, uh, so I'm, I'm the son of immigrants. My parents immigrated from the Philippines in 1969. And I think what, you know, what a lot of people uh, just, I think are undervalue or they, um, they're not as appreciative of just the vast diversity, both people-wise as well as geography-wise of the United States. And uh, and being the son of immigrants has uh, helped uh, really put that into focus for me. So uh, just being able to appreciate and to explore, honestly, all different parts of the United States. I think I've been to probably 47 of the 50 mm-hmm. states. Uh, and it's just out of a love for for. Uh, knowing how diverse it is and wanting to explore it. I'm the same way. I uh, I visited most of the states. I've lived in a ton of them because I grew up in a military family. So okay, lived overseas, lived all over the United States. And uh, I'm a huge fan of the Pacific Northwest, especially being on the border because I'm 35 minutes from Vancouver. Normally, when the mm. border's open, I have the Nexus Pass, pop right over, and uh, it's just great to live because you passed through Blaine when you went over the border, probably or around Blaine when you came I up. I imagine I did. I, I must have had to. Yeah, because there was a last city on the, in the United States before the border. Um, when you okay. go, there's a couple different border crossings, but mainly people come through the Peace Arch one. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. So that's where I'm at. 
right on the border, right there. Great. Well, we're on the other end. We're we're down in down in Dallas, Fort Worth, and uh, that's where that's where Eating Green is located. Uh, and oh. it's just been a it's been a fun experience. I actually uh, was born and raised in Houston, and then moved to Washington D.C. for about six years, and then made my way back to Texas. And so we, from D.C., we moved uh, to Dallas and have been there, been here ever since. I was in Dallas in February, actually, for a conference. Really, which was kind of weird because that was like right, right before when the shutdown. Start- yeah, I was there for a big kind of um, club managers conference for fitness and wellness that I'm part of. And I remember thinking when I was there, it's probably the last time I'm going anywhere for a while. (laughs) And, you know, yeah, it's true. That's what the last place I went was, was Dallas, Texas. Wow. Well, I hope you had a good experience here. It's a, it's a diverse city with a lot to do. That uh, we were in this hotel. um, I thought, I think it was, it was one, it was a massive hotel, the Gaylord Hotel, I think, or something oh, like yeah, that. Oh, yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. That's the biggest time. hotel. I mean, I, I used to live in Vegas, and I know what big hotels are like. This thing was so big, it was like dizzying how big it was. That's the way we do it here in Texas. Go big or go home. <laughs> well, I'd love to hear um, about what you do, because I was pitched your... Uh, company by I think Kidcaster and it was like vertical farming technology. I was like, you know, this is crazy. I literally just saw a special about vertical farming technology, and now I get to talk to somebody about it. I'm totally into this, so I'd love to kind of get the origins and the ideas behind it. Yeah. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, Eating Green Technologies was born out of the minds of two brothers. Uh, Jacques and Eugene Van Buren, and their heart was uh, surely to to feed the community around them in South Africa. And so Jacques and Eugene are both engineers. One was a structural, the other one was a construction engineer. Uh, they kind of put their heads together and spent some time, quite a bit of time actually developing this technology uh, that allows you to grow uh, with uh, just a high, high density uh, produce. And so uh, they brought it over to the United States in 2017 and proceeded to just work on it, uh, perfecting the, the, the technical aspects of it, getting a patent. Actually, it's patented here in a number of other countries, but then also working on the business behind it. And uh, that's when I came on board in 2000, uh, 2019, was really trying to uh, take this technology, this platform, and then build a business uh, that could scale and grow around it. So uh, the mission of Eating Green is just to change the way that we're farming produce and changing the way that that we feed people. And we do it through this this platform that allows you to grow uh, up to you know anywhere from 800 to 900,000 pounds of leafy greens and herbs and uh, certain types of berries and peppers, uh, but doing it in just a small amount of space, about an acre and a half, just about 62,000 square feet and, and being able to place that anywhere, almost anywhere in the world. So if you think about just the impact that that has just on the footprint alone, not to mention some of the other sustainable aspects of it, which I can get to in a bit, but if you just think about that in terms of footprint alone, uh, you can identify the most underserved parts of an urban community 
you can find an acre and a half for relatively cheap and that has access to municipal water, which is what we use. And you can place an, an engine, if you will, a, a green factory that can uh, generate harvest after harvest, uh, 11 to 13 harvests a year, actually. Uh, oh. and, and Yes, and do that in such a small amount of space. And because it's in this urban environment, because it's in the middle of this underserved community, uh, you are uh, not only... Uh, being located in a strategic distribution source. Like if you think about all the uh, underserved communities in urban areas and even suburban areas, they're, they're located. I mean, they're really honestly strategic distribution points. They're usually in the middle of the city or in the middle of a densely populated area. They've got great access to highways. Uh, they've got access to, um, you know, distribution, other distribution centers to retail centers. And so they're really a great place, but they just happen to be uh, underserved and underutilized for whatever reason, right? So we we can go in uh, and place one of these and uh, not only provide this green factory for produce, but we can also provide up to 30 jobs, full-time jobs in a career that uh, that is not just stagnant. It's not a dead-end job, but you can actually grow in this industry. So, you know, for those reasons alone, I think it's a really, really special model. Um, it's what I like to call a redemptive, a redemptive model, a redemptive framework for business. And then you just add in the sustainable pieces about it. It uses um, 99% less land than anyone else than a traditional farm. And then uh, from a from an environmental perspective, you're in my household probably consumes an average of around 45,000 gallons of water a year each. Well, this acre and a half greenhouse only consumes 90,000 gallons of water a year mm. to produce to produce 8 to 900,000 pounds of produce. And you compare that to a traditional farm uh, for the same uh, type of produce, the same varietal, it would probably take around uh, anywhere from 6 to 800,000 gallons of water a year to do that same amount of produce. So there's just some uh, unbelievable water savings, which I think water is the next oil in terms of mm. uh, just uh, demand and, and scarcity. So, uh, and then, and then you get to, you know, electric and, and energy costs were much, much more cost efficient than your other uh, lit greenhouses or, you know, controlled environment agriculture uh uh, type platforms like the ones that are fully enclosed. And then, you know, we, uh, from, from energy, we're not spending tons and tons of diesel fuel trying to harvest all of this. It's all in an acre and a half. So, uh, we're using very, very electric, uh, little electricity costs to make all of this work. So you put all those things together and man, you've got a really, really, uh, revolutionary platform to change the way that we think about, hey, how do we feed people and how do we give them access uh, to nutritious food instead of some of those, a lot of the empty carbs that we see mm -hmm. uh, that are most, uh, you know, most closely associated with uh, being in a, uh, the foods that are consumed by folks in the lower socioeconomic statuses. It's incredible. I, now is this, will you consider this, um, newer technology or is it just something we haven't known about per se, like in the news and things of that nature? So, uh, you know, hydroponics 
and vertical farming are are relatively new. Uh, they've they've been around for probably ten or fifteen, maybe even longer. Uh, hydroponics for sure has been around longer. But when you get to the way that we have combined both hydroponics as well as vertical farming, as well as just being able to control all the nutrients and do it in a greenhouse setting, that's what's patented. That's what's never been done before. Mm. I see. And is there a um, is there a pushback from farmers? And people in that industry about what's happening vertical uh, farming, or is there is there this kind of a cohesive aspect or transition of it? So uh, I, I think you know where there's pushback, uh, there's probably some some education opportunities on our end. Uh, so the, the biggest obstacles to us aren't actually other farmers. Uh, the biggest obstacles are our believability. And then, and education, education on what hydroponics is, education on how much you can actually grow, education on the nutrition from hydroponics and how it, you know, uh, how it, how it relates to, you know, how, how our body ingests it and, uh, and the nutrients that we get out of it. And then just believability. I mean, it's hard to believe you can grow that amount of produce naturally, uh, you know, not, not using some artificial, I call them, right. you know, plant steroids, if you will, or genetically sure. modified plants to get the, you know, to get that type of density and that type of harvest. Uh, so there's a huge believability aspect to it, but I don't, you know, at the end of the day, I, I don't believe we're in competition with farmers and I'll, and I'll give a couple of reasons. One is we, we can't, we can't grow everything like vertical farming and controlled environment ag, uh, is, is not a silver bullet. There are a lot of crops like wheat and rice that just don't make sense to be grown in indoors. Uh, and then there are crops that can't be grown because their their stems are too woody or the roots are too deep. Uh, and and so you know those types of things will will probably will never replace a, a farmer. Uh, and then the the second thing is, uh, you know I I think we're I think we're here to help with best practices for farmers. So if farmers can mix and match their crops and take the practices that we use in terms of water conservation, in terms of nutrition, uh, in terms of pest control, and then apply that to some of the other, whether it's a traditional greenhouse uh, or some of their open open land type farming, uh, I think it will, you know, it will only benefit them. So I can, I can totally imagine a farm where you've got one of our greenhouses on there right next to some traditional farm land that's growing corn or growing rice or growing some of the other foodstuffs and it having be, you know, a mix of a variety of greens uh, on that farm, but it's making the farm more profitable and it's making the farm more sustainable by having uh, a greenhouse like on ours being on that, uh, on that piece of land and growing a certain type of crop. So how do you go about the educational piece, especially in the landscape that we're in, where there's so much information out there, whether the believability factor of whether it's true or not, and misinformation, how do you go about that? So uh, I want to pause right here. I'm getting feedback from you on your end. Are you hearing that on mine? No, no, it, it happens sometimes, but uh, it never ends up coming out that way in the, in the final Okay, thing. great. Yeah. Good, good, good. Um, so 
maybe repeat the question and then and then yeah we'll of course um so how do you provide education in this environment where it's kind of the wild west of information and people are always putting out content all over the place and dealing with maybe some people's preconceived ideas about what farming is and isn't yeah so that's really on us it's on us to uh in in my marketing team and which has done a fantastic job of just putting content out there that is uh, both educational as well as you know shows the benefits of Eden Green and our technology. Uh, but I think it's on the industry itself. Like people ask, like, hey, do you have folks who can lobby Washington or lobby state uh, mm. state houses and to you know to provide grants and to provide assistance? And the reality is, our industry isn't near mature enough to even have that type of organization or association. It's just that new. So right now, as it stands, it's on us to educate folks on, hey, here are the, here are the true benefits of hydroponics. Here's where it works really well. Here's where you know it doesn't make economic sense. But then here's also like, here's how we do it. Like here's the in and outs of it. And aside from our technology, we're really trying to be an open book uh, with uh, with consumers, with advocates, and then with potential clients on how we do what we do. Uh, and it's, you know, it's so interesting. It's, there is most of the things that we use are commercially available. There's nothing patented or proprietary about the growing medium that we use called rock wool, or this another, it's an organic material called Jiffy plugs or the, uh, uh, the type of uh, seeds that we use for propagating uh, our plants, like all of that is commercially available. Most people just don't know that it exists. And so uh, it's, it's up to us to educate them and say, Hey, no, this is proven technology. It's a, it's been proven for decades with rock wool and others, uh, other types of uh, growing mediums and technology. We're just using it in a different way and we're, we're doing it and we're, we're really like, trumpeting out there uh, that this is a new better way to grow uh, and the industry as a whole is becoming much more affordable and economically viable to grow uh, the things that people really want in mass like spinach and arugula and lettuce and kale and chard and basil and all those delicious uh, produce that right now we're having a really hard time getting you mentioned about um, an underserved communities. Um, what's the approach here? How do you go into those communities and start to change them from food deserts to uh, vertical farming uh, production places that are really then there's no then there's an opportunity for communities to actually have fresh produce. Yeah, that's a good question. So our model is unique in the industry. And, and this is something I can say pretty confidently. I haven't seen anyone else mm -hmm. do it. But our model is unique in the industry in that our greenhouses are economic units. They are, uh, each one of them is a standalone unit that can be profitable and sustainable economically and financially. And so what we provide is this platform for, uh, you know, and we, and we sell these to uh, entrepreneur-led investor groups. We sell them to 
uh, investor groups interested in sort of a real estate play. Uh, we're selling them uh, to uh, nonprofits that are looking for a sustainable project. And we're even looking at nation states and regional authorities that just want to feed their people. And we're, we're presenting it to them as, hey, you can take this greenhouse. We'll help you construct it. Uh, we'll provide management and support and training and recruiting. And then obviously we will license that technology uh, to them. And But you, they, they will own it. They will own that greenhouse, whether it's that nonprofit, whether it's that entrepreneur-led investor group. They will own that greenhouse and be able to make a profit on it that have its own profit and loss statement, P&L. Uh, and then they can they can donate or they can uh, put back into the community from, from the net profits what they want uh, to benefit the community around them above and beyond the jobs that they're already providing for them. And so this economic model, because these are economic units and because we built these to be profitable, uh, this model allows for a living day's wage for these 30 people uh, and uh, a career path, a ladder, if you will, uh, to increase their earning potential and then to increase their uh, professional career and skill set beyond just working in an eating green greenhouse, but it would be applicable to working in almost any other controlled environment ag industry. What's the potential for this in maybe home use is that something you guys are doing or is it just more commercial so you know there are existing home use type models uh, and i think each of these has its place i mean the the most popular one is called tower gardens and those are fantastic to put out on a um you know on a balcony or on a on a porch we weren't built for that we were built for feeding people at scale feeding tens of thousands of people off of one greenhouse Right. So, uh, you know, that you have sort of, you know, it, it looks it looks that way in almost any technology. You've got your your amateur photographers, you've got your right. prosumers, and then you've got the folks who are doing it for a living. And we're our greenhouses are made for uh, entrepreneurs, made for nonprofits, made for nation states that want to feed people so they can live and feed entire communities so that they can live and thrive. That's amazing. I, I wasn't aware of even the, the home aspects of it. I mean, I, I know, I think about it kind of as you think about people having gardens. Mm -hmm. And I think there's been a lot of that kind of these home gardens through the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. And, Victory right? Gardens. We've got Victory Gardens. We've got a, yeah, we've got we've got some friends here that are actually producing those little Victory Gardens, uh, and they're doing enormously, enormously well. So, talk a little bit about the difference, maybe between those type of. I, I would imagine we're discussing kind of raised bed gardens versus the vertical yeah. based garden that someone could have. So, uh, I, I think you know a good a good analogy. Um, if I may, is, is really between, you know, amateur and professional. And if, if you go up that gradient, so I'll start with the small, the tower gardens and the, and the raised bed gardens, those are good to feed a family. Right. And, uh, so th three, three aspects of it, there's consistency, accessibility, and then safety from a consistency level. They'll only pre be able to produce, uh, you know, greens 
uh, on a certain uh, part of the season, right? In the winter, they, they can probably replant. It'll take some work, but they can replant for winter harvests, mm-hmm. uh, different types of, uh, of produce. And, and they're great for one family. Uh, they're inconsistent, right? Sometimes you may have great yields. Sometimes you may not. It just kind of depends on how green your thumb is and how right. knowledgeable you are, right? How knowledgeable you are on growing produce. So then you move up the gradient to community gardens and community gardens are, uh, are they're about the same level of consistency or inconsistency. Uh, the accessibility is only to the folks that live around there who participate in the community garden. And then the safety aspect starts to come into play. When you start to grow more and more and you do it in an open air setting, you're going to be subject to uh, plant diseases. You're going to be subject to pests. You're going to be subject to the chemicals that are used to control those pests. So safety becomes an issue. And uh, as you're feeding more people, you start to get into liability and risk. And so those community gardens, they're, they're sort of, they're hands off of like, hey, you, whatever you eat from here, that's it's on you, right? Well, that's not really good for pe- feeding a whole community. So then you get into sort of uh, the the traditional greenhouses, and I'll just go with uh, controlled environment uh, for a second. You go into the com- to commercial greenhouses, and commercial greenhouses are great, but uh, they take up a lot of space. So one acre of ours is probably equal to at least five acres of another greenhouse. Wow. And at least, uh, depending on the varietal. So uh, that is uh, interesting because where are you going to find five acres in the middle of a city? It's true. Right? To, and then, and then how is that going to be financially feasible if you're running a commercial greenhouse uh, and then trying to make a profit and then paying the note on the land and yada, 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 keeps on going on. So then you get to big, huge commercial farms. Well, you definitely can't do that in the city. Uh, so then you have to do that outside of the city limits and in, in rural areas. And then you get into logistics and shipping and supply chains, right? So all along the way, uh, as you grow bigger, your consistency gets uh, better, but your accessibility tends to stay the same or gets worse, or it comes at a higher cost. And then your safety and liability goes skyrockets. So that's why, you know, that's why it's not, they're they're all apples and oranges. You would never compare a tower garden or a raised bed garden, or even a community garden to some of the huge farms that are on the outskirts or way far away from your city limits. Or, you know, where honestly, where most people get their produce, which is from the Salinas Valley in California Hmm. or somewhere in the Midwest, right? That is, it's, it's apples and oranges to try to compare those two. And then, so you plop us in there and all of a sudden we're disrupting the entire industry by saying, no, we can grow with accessibility, we can grow with consistency year-round, season-agnostic produce. Uh, and because it's 40 miles or four miles away from your house, it's way more accessible. It bypasses a lot of the supply chain issues that we're seeing right now. Like I'm sure you've seen shortages at Chick-fil-A and Chipotle and yeah, shoot, Whole Foods. Like they're all out of a certain type of lettuce because all because there was warmer weather in the Salinas Valley and because there is a disease problem. Literally, like 
plant disease problem, not even COVID, plant mm. disease problem. Right. Then right. you stack on that COVID and how it's disrupted our supply chains and people, you know, not being able to drive trucks or people not being able to, you know, uh, interact as much so that uh, everything's changed about the supply chain because of COVID. So, you know, to be able to say, no, no, we can supply it uh, consistently. We can supply it in a way that's accessible to all. And then lastly, we do it uh, in the utmost of safety. So with Eden Green, we've got uh, our, our culture is one of food safety. It's not just a food safety program. It's a culture of food safety, so much so that uh, we just had our uh, our uh, food quality audit, yearly audit done, SQF is what it's called, audit done, and uh, we scored a 98 out of 100, which to them was unheard of. I mean, oh, wow. they, they audit us year after year, and they, they uh, year after year, the auditor says, man, this is such a pleasure to audit you guys. Because <laughs> one, I'm like nitpicking, but then two, you take a step back and you realize man, this is so clean and it's so, it just benefits the consumer so much to have this so clean. So that's what we're really proud about. And you put all three of those together, consistency, accessibility, and safety, and we are redefining what it means to be locally grown. And that's what we want to do. We want to, we want to redefine the meaning of local and locally grown foods. And and we think we're doing it in a pretty special way. I mean, it sounds amazing. And when I hear things like this, I'm like, everybody needs to hear about this. This is incredible. Right? You know, like, why isn't this like, why isn't it larger? Though, in a sense, you know, I feel like even though maybe some things 10, 15 years technology has been around, is it, is it like you said, an education or is it a marketing? Is it a visibility issue? Is I, I, I feel like I know a lot of people who are into stuff like this, but we don't talk about this. We don't have these discussions. What is that? I mean, you know. So, you know, one is obviously because our technology is patented, it should tell you something about how new this is, yeah. how new the way that we're growing is. Like, again, hydroponics, controlled environment agriculture is not new in a sense, but the yeah. way that we're doing it is new enough that it's a game changer. I think the second two is uh, people have been content. They've been content to accept where their food is coming from mm, yeah and uh and inertia is a whip like <laughs> that's true i mean whether it comes to weight loss whether it comes to finances whether it comes to you know you, you're miserable at your job inertia just keeps you there longer than you ought to be and so with the food mm. supply and with our with our food distribution supply chain as it stands we've just had inertia on it because We've had everything handed to us and it was just fine. But now that COVID hit, COVID is, COVID hasn't, uh, maybe it's maybe created some new trends, but really for the most part across society, COVID has just accelerated all the trends. It's accelerated, you know, it's accelerated how we stream stuff online to watch movies. It's accelerated our uh, direct to consumer type model, e-com model. It's accelerated eating from home more, which we've we've been gearing towards. It's accelerated work from home and working remotely, which more people have wanted to do, but we just haven't applied the technology. All of a sudden, COVID hits, and every company somehow magically is able to shift to rem- work from home remotely. In I know magically, yeah. right? It's just magical. It's inertia, and it's the same thing with this. 
think for a long time, people have been all right with where they're getting their food. But as COVID has hit and as more of these recalls and and E. coli outbreaks and salmonella, salmonella outbreaks have happened, it's starting to wake people up and saying, gosh, we have to do something differently. And, and, and we're here for it, right? We're, we're absolutely here for it. And, and you're only going to see more of these uh, outbreaks and these supply chain shortages. You're just going to see more of them. All the trends point towards it. Uh, climate, uh, climate change, environmental change, mm-hmm. uh, supply chain disruption, more pandemics. Uh, our, our population is only growing larger. Even if you look at the most basic trends, population is going up. So the demand for food and the demand for fresh food and for produce is only going to up either as a, as an end product or as an ingredient in your foods. So the demand for fresh produce is only going to go up because of that increase in population. Then you, then you link that with a broken supply chain and you link that with more people uh, moving to urban or suburban areas and you're seeing the supply go down. So if demand's going up and the supply's going down, something's going to give. And that's what we're seeing right now. We're seeing that delta being exposed, and that's where we're trying to step in. Do you see that this is this technology is more visible or accepted in certain parts of the country versus others, or is it just it just depends on who you're talking to? It depends on who you're talking to. It's it's very accepted outside of this country. I mean, you look at the, mm-hmm. the Dutch are the absolute masters in greenhouse growing uh, for for tulips, for produce, for everything else. They're just the masters at it. And uh, and then you look at Singapore, and Singapore is committed to right now. I think they import ninety percent of their produce, which is mind boggling. It's insane. Uh, but they're but but they have such little land and they have a high density of population. So Singapore wants to shift that to, I think, like 50% imported down to 20% even in, in the next 25 to 50 years. I, I forgot the exact numbers. But uh, so you've got, you've got the Dutch who've been masters at it and are used to it. You've got folks like Singapore who are making themselves get used to it. They're forcing their culture and their society to get used to it. Uh, Japan's the same way. And then you have folks in the Middle East who are live in literal deserts and they yeah. do not want to be, there's a whole national national security play to this, which is food independence. They want to be, have some level of independence from the global supply chain uh, in case some, some freak nature thing happens or another pandemic rolls around. Every time one of those happens, countries, every single country is going to look at itself and they're going to say, how can we become more independent of the supply chain? Not fully independent because globalism is here to stay, but there's an element of independence from a food supply perspective that every country is talking about in the halls of their government. So that is, uh, those are the types of people that we're interested in talking to uh, about uh, you know, putting one of our greenhouses uh, for them to buy the platform and buy multiple greenhouses. We're, we're talking to one Middle East country right now that's, um, mm. you know, that's looking at multiple, multiple greenhouses because they're trying to, they're trying to do that. They're trying to solve for that. I saw that Toronto, um, and I think it may be the same special I was watching with this, that they are trying to, at some point, 20, 30 years down the line, be 
basically a local city where they provide food just for people who live in Toronto and we're not going to focus on exporting or things of that nature or importing, sorry, with that. That seems like a trend of like cities feeding themselves versus getting it from other places. Yeah, it is. It's called city resiliency. Like if you look it up, okay. uh, it is a growing trend. Uh, I think if I want to say Milan or one of the cities, either Milan or Venice, it's kind of the leading the leading city in terms of city resiliency. Uh, one of the you know one of the cities in Italy. Uh, but th- that term uh, is coming up more and more in conversation because people are starting to realize there's a benefit, there's an attraction to a city that has a great, you know, standard of living, a lower cost of living. It's uh, healthy uh, to its inhabitants. And then they start to tack on all these extras and these things that are attractors like, Hey, we've got the freshest produce. We've subsidized uh, clean, healthy eating. Uh, And those are, you know, those are real things to, to people about how they want to raise their, their families and, where they want to raise their families. And if you, if you have uh, the ability to, you know, we've got increased uh, mobility here in the world today about moving from place to place and where you want to live and work. If you, if you, if you look at that trend of increased mobility, then, then you start to really have to look at the factors for moving. What would bring someone to a Dallas? What would bring, you know, someone to a, Pacific Northwest of Vancouver, Seattle, or even where you're at. And it really comes down to, Hey, what's the cost of living? What's the job situation? And then is it, is it a safe, healthy place for my family to grow up? And and this is one aspect of it. So I think folks like Toronto, cities like Toronto, cities like Dallas, cities like Milan are trying to solve for that and, and attract people in much different ways. And this is one of them. Tell me a little bit about the grocery store element to it. Is there an aspect that you're working with grocery stores or you know, working with them to highlight the fact that this food is coming from uh, vertical farming technology. I would think like if I walked into, let's say a Whole Foods and I saw a sign or something that said, this is produced by, you know, Eden Green, and this is like 10 miles away or five miles away. Is, the, is that b- going to become a reality where we're going to see more of that, where food is sourced, how close it is? Yeah, so you you had hit on something that's that's that is a highlighted that it's a growing trend, and that is uh, local food. And uh, from my contacts in the industry, in the retail grocery and uh, in retail industry, they've seen up to a four x increase in the demand for locally grown food. So you you hit the nail on the head. Now, at the end of the day, grocers are going to be really concerned about price. They're very very price sensitive. Right. The margins on grocery, I, I don't know if you're aware, margins on grocers are just razor thin. Like I would not want to be in the grocery wow, industry right know, now. No. Or or ever, right? Their revenues are going up. Like all <laughs> right. the grocery stores are just crushing it right now, right? Because everyone's eating from home and they can't go to mm-hmm. out to restaurants and whatnot. But the reality is their margins stay really thin. And and so, you know, when you have thin margins as a just as a rule in your industry, you're always going to be looking at cost. So, but you're always going to be looking at demand. Like what, what do the, what do, what does the consumer want? So the consumer wants local food at the lowest price possible. And the grocer wants, because the consumer wants it local food, but at the lowest price possible. 
right? So they can pass that on to the consumer. So that's where we're seeing some real interest uh, from from grocery chains is, hey, can you provide the freshness that we can't find? Can you provide consistency uh, to that fresh produce uh, that we can't find right now? Uh, and then, and then, how much does it cost, right? So that's where I think uh, the rubber's hitting the road with grocery stores. Local is all well and good. Organic's all well and good. People say like, oh, if I knew it was grown from four miles away, I'd buy it. At the end of the day, it comes down to price. And that's what right. the grocers are looking at. So we're, it's our job to make it as, as the technology improves and as our innovation on how we grow and how we plant and how we harvest all those things, as those improve how much our yields are. Uh, per plant spot, which is how we measure effectiveness as a yield per plant spot, uh, that that as those increase, then the cost goes down and it becomes more and more palatable to grocery stores. Uh, you know, and there's ancillary sort of factors that they that they are looking at now. One is which is a vertically integrated supply chain. Like they don't want to, they don't want to be dependent on the Salinas Valley for all yeah. their produce. Uh, because here's the deal when they, and, and it doesn't, it makes its way up to the, to the CFO, you know, to the buyer down at, you know, a, a buying level, it doesn't make as much sense. They're just looking for the lowest price and consistency. Uh, but when it gets up to the CFO, they're accounting for, say, say you're in, you know, probably not the Pacific Northwest, but say you're in Chicago. Um, if you're buying lettuce uh, from a distributor, you know, and they're getting it out of the Salinas Valley in California, and it's going to make its way to Chicago, you're accounting for f- like upwards of 40% loss hmm. of, of, yeah, no joke. Like it, they're just pricing that in wow. to, uh, to their, to their margins. They assume that, you know, you're going to have, uh, well, you're going to assume that, uh, out of everything harvested, it's going to stay in, uh, you know, a warehouse for 24, 48 hours in Salinas Valley. And then it's going to make its way in a refrigerated truck uh, under the weight of hundreds of thousands of pounds of other boxes, right? In a refrigerated truck, cross country, call it three days. So now it's five days. Then it's going to sit in a, you know, distribution warehouse for another couple of days then it's going to make it out to, if it's in a clamshell, which is those plastic boxes, it'll make it out onto the shelf a week, two weeks, week and a half after you harvested it. And if it's a wet wall, then, you know, you know, those, you know, what I'm talking about with wet wall where, you know, yes. that sprays every five minutes. Yeah. It's called a wet wall. If, on, so if it's on a wet wall, it's not going to last very long. Right. So, but, but once they open those boxes at the store, then they have to figure out, okay, what looks good enough to put on the shelf? <laughs> right. Right. And then what, what I cannot put this on the shelf. It's, it's crushed. It's, it's, it may be totally edible, but it's just, it doesn't look great. So then they start throwing that stuff out, right? 40%. So it, it 40% loss. It's nuts. And then that is and crazy. Then you, right. So there's this recall a couple of weeks ago of, uh, I believe it was romaine lettuce. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think it was romaine and it was from the Salinas Valley. No surprise. Well, the recall was, uh, in like November on November the 7th or 10th, something like that. The, the harvest date was October the 15th. 
So you're telling me oh my. you're doing an active recall on plants that are three weeks old and they're still on the shelf somehow. Otherwise, if they weren't on the shelf, they would have never done a recall, right? Wow. That is crazy. And that, but that's the norm. That's the norm, Darian. That's the norm. That's the norm. That's the inertia. It's what we're having. It's what we accept. Yeah. It's what we accept. So I think more people are less willing to accept that. And, you know, right now it's all, you know, higher socioeconomic status, but I guarantee you it's going to work its way down. And, and, you know, working class, the, the middle America, just the average American is just not going to accept that anymore. And that's, that's what we're, that's what we're banking on. We're banking on that trend that people are not going to accept that type of, uh, of lack of quality in what they're eating. It's really eye opening. I mean, just the way you described the harvest to the shelf. And I mean, actually it's gross. (laughs) It's really gross. If you think about it. So then it makes you wonder, like, that's why your bananas are green, man. Yes. Because they have to pick them so early so that they ripen on the way through the supply chain. <laughs> right. And 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 it's so it's so inconsistent that you would think they wouldn't be green by the time they get to your shelf. But they know it's gonna sit there for another week, week and a half, so that so that you just reverse engineer that and you think, well, gosh, if it's gonna sit there for a week and a half, so the latest one is gonna be there, it's gonna be yellow just ripe. So, but when it sits on the shelf, it's got to be a little, you know, somewhat green. Mm-hmm. And then when I pick it two weeks earlier, it's got to be really green. So, and then, and even then they still don't get it right. Man, it's surprising that there's not more health issues than there already are with us, with these supply chains. And you talk about the pandemic and all these things. It's surprising these things don't happen more often, actually, in our yeah. life. You know, and, and you know, there's, there's uh, you know, there are the outbreaks, there are the, the E. coli and salmonella outbreaks that we're seeing. And then there's the ones that are just not tracked. And then there's just this whole idea of, I'll, I'll call it a low-grade fever. Uh, I think a lot of people in in our uh, in our society and our culture are experiencing a low grade fever of just unhealthy food. Hmm. Uh, and they've got their body has one both built up a tolerance, but also people don't know what it's real, really like to feel healthy. And so sure. they just kind of work with it. Right. And, and I, almost everyone who's probably listening to this podcast can identify some area in their life. They're like, you know what? If I really thought about it, I probably shouldn't be feeling this unhealthy day to day, or my knee probably shouldn't be hurting day to day like this. It's just a low grade thing, but I just got to work through it because I got too much other stuff to worry about. Yeah, I think a lot of people are 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 experiencing a low grade fever of just unhealthy foods, and they're willing to bear it. Uh, and then every now and then, something spikes like a like an outbreak and it kind of wakes people up and then then you just go back to whatever like okay i guess they fixed it right. and then you start they buying their produce again. i'm like okay right yeah uh but i think that's the you know uh, pandemic 
is such a bummer for a lot of different reasons. And ours is uh, mine is such a small, small complaint. But one complaint is like, if more more people knew about this and and were able to take a tour of our greenhouse and were able to just taste and see, they would never eat their old produce again. Like my kids, my kids will not eat any other produce now. Uh, I, I have the benefit of taking home. Uh, that's the, the one of the perks of the job is I'm able to take yeah. home produce uh, at will, right? And uh, and my and my kids and then my neighbors uh, who who are the beneficiaries of of my largesse uh, have been able to taste some of the greens, whether it be lettuce or uh, uh, we had these amazing mustard greens that we harvested a couple of weeks ago that people had arugula and then basil, a passed out hundreds of pounds of basil that people then mm. actually replant. Uh, they they replant in their own gardens. Uh, but once they taste that, like, oh my gosh, w- what have I been eating for the past 30 years? They're not used to fresh, actual fresh things. I mean, it's, it's and, a huge and difference. Not just, not just fresh, but nutrient rich. Right. Right. And, and flavor rich. Uh, and, you know, that's one of the people ask, you would probably ask this. It's probably on your question list somewhere. Like, how do you compare to organic? Because I get that all the time. Yeah. Well, you know, with organic, uh, it's a it's a worthy endeavor to pursue organic. But the flip side is organic is a is a marketing and a PR nomenclature created by the industry uh, because you know they they wanted to create a distinctive difference between conventional gardening. I get that, and conventional growing, totally get that, and I respect that. But there's there's pieces about organic that that don't add up when you think about like, hey, is this really the best? It's probably better no doubt than conventional farming, but the best. So uh, organic, uh, some of the things that, that people don't really think about with organic is, okay, your farm may be organic, but what about the farms around it? Right. Right. Like, are they organic? What about what they're spraying? How's it getting onto your farm? How's it getting, how's the runoff leaching on? Like there was a, there was a recall a couple of months ago, not because the farm itself was, uh, was had had you know bad bacteria in it but because there was a runoff from cattle farms around it that it was going into their water supply and then that was a that was introducing e coli into their plants jeez so so you you can't control what's around you what about in the air right what's being what's being sprayed all around you are you near are you remotely near to an industrial complex what does that look like Right? How's the air quality just overall in your region? Um, can you control stuff that's coming from you know thousands of miles away that just happens to be in the air? What about your you know what about your um, your nutrients? Right. Uh, uh, one of the things about hydro like air, uh, aquaponics is a very popular thing right now is you have a fish farm right next to and you use that the water from the fish farm to then. Uh, create nutrients for your, for your plants. And my question is, well, what do you feed in the fish? Right. Right. And, and what else is in that, what else is in that pond? Right. And so there's just a lot of questions. And then also what's the history of your soil? So true. Right. What, what was in there before you established your farm? So there's a lot of great things about organic, but it's not a silver bullet. And so when people ask us to compare us to organic, I think we're better than organic because we're introducing only what we want the plants to have and we're keeping everything else out. 
You're controlling the variables very fine. Totally controlled. Yeah. Controlling all the variables so that the plants are our, our greenhouses. You'll walk in our greenhouse and uh, down here in Fort Worth. And uh, one, one day I want you to, I want you to come visit and I'll, I'll give you yeah, a personal for sure. tour. And, Would love a to. tour of it. But you walk <laughs> in there and, uh, and it's hot. Like, and people like, man, it is, you know, I'm sweating here. And, and we're always quick to tell people like, Hey, this greenhouse wasn't built for you. It wasn't built for people. It was <laughs> built for plants. Right. So, so we are, a, we are in one sense, a very plant centric company, right? Our greenhouses are built for plants, but at the same time, we are a very, very people, a consumer centric company, and we only want what's, what's best for the plants, uh, will end up being what's best in in the consumer's bodies and, 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 you know, as, as they taste it in their mouth. So that's what we're trying to control the variables for, uh, is that right there and do it in such a way, like even our pest control techniques are all natural. Like, uh, so, you know, we're doing it in such a way that we think has uh, long-term health benefits and that it's, it's renewing culture and renewing the environment around us instead of uh, negating it or instead of just, just uh, being neutral. I tell you what, that was that was an incredible line. Like, what's great for plants, you know, basically what's is best for people. For that, I mean that that's a good way to end it. Honestly, <laughs> I mean that that sums it up. I mean, if you're treating plants well, you're controlling for the, for the variables that will make it really positive for the human experience and consumption. You're doing a worthwhile, good thing. Eddie, thank you so much for being on. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. It's been a it's been an absolute pleasure. I love conversations like this because it does raise awareness, not just for us, but just for the overall uh, supply chain and our all of our food sources. And I love to make people ask questions like, "Hey, so where is that coming from? And is that really <laughs> good for me? And if it isn't, then gosh, I need to make a change." Uh, and so. Yeah. If, if that's what, if that's the end result of people here in this podcast is like, man, I need to make a change in what I'm eating or how I'm living or where I'm getting my food from or how I'm shopping, how I'm supporting uh, local businesses or how I'm supporting local farmers or locally grown, then, then, then I think my work is complete. I think so. I mean, definitely. I know a lot of people, I've been telling a lot of people about this interview coming up. Uh, that I know, and uh, obviously we'll be sharing it with a large audience and such, but I'm pretty sure you're going to get some people who are going to be like, I had no clue about any of this, and I need to figure out some different ways of doing things. So it's going to happen. Thank so. you so much, man. Yeah, I hope so. Well, uh, thanks again for having me. You got it. So let me ask you something. How do you get your news? Because I know you want to stay informed with what's going on here in the world. There's so much going on on a regular basis. And it's something that's been a problem for me personally. And I've been searching and searching and searching. And finally, I found a news source that I think all of my listeners are going to love. It's called The Donut, or The Dose of News Useful Today. The founder and CEO, Peter Nowak, is a good friend of mine. And when he turned me on to it, I was just blown away. Finally, a daily news source that delivers succinct and factual news about all the world's occurrences and it's an easy access to finding things that you just want to get information about 
And it also serves up a lot of positive news stories that you won't hear anywhere else. It's your daily reminder that there is good in the world, even if it doesn't feel like it sometimes. So get the donut, stay informed. It's 100% free. You can unsubscribe anytime. Visit thedonut.co or text donut to 66866 to sign up today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the Rate and Review section. Thanks, everyone.